Welcome to Propel, a podcast by Fellowship Pacific to propel you and your ministry forward in the mission God has for you. I'm your host, Jessica Powell, and in today's episode, you'll get to listen in as Krista Penner from our leadership development team talks with Paul Park, lead pastor at South Delta Baptist Church. Paul and Krista are discussing a topic that I think is important to many of us, but if we're truly honest with ourselves, is one that we often struggle to know how to address. And that's the topic of how can we lead our churches to actually reach and represent the diverse community that is growing around us. Our communities are changing, and if we want to reach them, then we have to change too. Paul shares with us how we as the church can start to take real steps towards breaking through the barriers that still exist between our different cultures. Let's listen in now to Chris's conversation with Paul Park. Well, welcome, Paul. Uh, we're really glad to have you here. I'm Krista Penner, and this is the Propel Fellowship Pacific podcast. And I'm here today with Paul Park. He's a pastor of South Delta Baptist Church. So welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm glad that we get to do this. Yeah, I am too. Uh, we've been we've been doing these podcasts, connecting our pastors to our wider fellowship uh, community, really wanting to take this time to encourage our pastors and our leaders across the province and into Yukon with what's happening in our individual churches. And so just really glad that you could take the time today to help um, spread the word about what's happening in Tawasson and the Delta area with your church congregation, innovative things that you're doing uh, with your congregation. And so I, I think a great way to get started here, Paul, is just to let people know who you are. So I could tell stories about you, but I'm going <laughs> to let you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and what you're doing at South Delta. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I have a wife, beautiful wife. We can start there, Sarah. And uh, a lot of people, my claim to fame is that Sarah's family is uh, really ingrained into the fellowship family. So her brother, Jeremy Johnson, works for Village Church as one of their pastors. And Howard Johnson is CEO of Baptist Housing. So we got a lot of fellowship history there. My dad also works with the seminary. So we got lots of uh, connections that way. But Sarah and I, we met at church and we got married uh, five, almost five years ago now. And uh, we have a beautiful boy who's turning four in just a couple months here. Uh, his name's Nathan. And we, I just kicked them out right now because I got to do this podcast at home and they're usually not easy to kind of uh, keep quiet. <laughs> so, so Nathan and Sarah are out for a walk. Um, but yeah, have a beautiful family, have a beautiful family of church uh, people at our South Delta Baptist Church as well. I have the privilege of being one of their pastors and it's just an exciting journey that we've been on. I've been in, uh, on staff with the church for almost six, six and a half years, I think. Uh, maybe seven years almost. Yeah. And then um, I've been lead pastor for just two and a half. So it's been an exciting journey. Um, Tawasson's a great place. So I'm thankful to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you. And I can attest to uh, your little guy not knowing about being quiet, but you know, he is the son of a pastor. Yes. So there's a little bit of a genetic thing happening there where he's just got lots and lots of words. And I just, I just love him. He's just a sweetheart. Your wife, beautiful, beautiful woman. And I know you're just so, so blessed uh, with your little family. And we are blessed to have you as part of our fellowship. And, you know, as we get started here today, Paul, I really wanted to uh, really wanted our listeners to hear a little bit about your journey. How did you come to know Christ in your life? And when did you first feel a call to ministry in your life? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I grew up here in Vancouver, but I also moved around tons. So my dad, he was planting churches, working with seminaries. So I lived in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Tampa, Florida, Seoul, Korea. That's where I was born. Um, and then here in Vancouver, Surrey, Langley. So this is my 36th home, I think. Um, I've moved around tons. Um, and the, I guess the unique part of my childhood was that since grade nine, I lived on my own. And many people kind of find it hard to believe that uh, parents would leave a grade nine boy <laughs> on, on their own and try to kind of fend for myself. But long story short, I had a rough childhood, um, you know, got into some bad habits with, you know, drugs, alcohol, bad friends, um, whatnot. Well, not bad friends. I still hang out with them. They're great guys. But, you know, sometimes we led ourselves into some troubles. And uh, so um, amidst all of that, um, my parents were still praying. My dad's a church pastor at the time. So I knew about Christ. I always knew that God was there, never doubted the existence of God or anything, but at the same time, never really actively lived a life of faith um, until about when I was in my early 20s. Um, I remember my mom came over back to Canada just to visit. They always came like once or twice a year at least. And then she prayed a prayer with me. We went to this prayer service um, and then she prayed. I wasn't really going to church at the time, but she prayed that um, God would give me, uh, take away this lukewarm heart and give me a heart that's burning for, for God, passionate for God. And I just thought, man, why would mom pray that? That's just so weird. And I didn't even know that was from Revelation at the time. And I was just like, okay, whatever. But then I hit a wall with the lifestyle that I was living. I was in my own condo at the time, two-bedroom condo just by myself. Um, and being a young bachelor, I, I always felt this loneliness because like, when Christmas comes around, all my friends go back and hang out with family, whereas I would have none. Um, and I, I guess I was trying to put up this face of being, you know, I'm okay. I'm tough. I'm all right. And I hung out. I had like a very huge social life. Everyone was always over at my place. We were always partying, hanging out. Um, and then it, I just hit a wall and I thought, you know what, one day I woke up, I could hear the fridge kind of going. And then I'm like, man, if I died today, the world wouldn't miss me. It, it would be actually a good thing probably to get rid of me from this world. And then I got to the point where I'm like, how do I make my life worth more than just this crappy life that I'm living right now? There's got to be something more. And then I remembered all the Sunday school lessons that, you know, God will always take you back no matter, you know, the prodigal son story that came to mind. And I decided, you know what, maybe mom had a, had a thing there when, he, when she was praying. Maybe I do need to go back. So I decided to search and it, it took a couple of years of journeying back um, to being a follower of Christ. But um, it led me to actually love God for myself, not because my parents were pastors and whatnot, but just because I wanted to. And that got me into a healthy young adult group. Um, they embraced me, even though I bullied them quite a bit. Um, they, they were all loving and forgiving. So that was a real testament for me that church is real, that God's love actually is real. Um, and then I got plugged into TFN ministry, which is the Twasson First Nations ministry and stuff like that. And then Kent Anderson one day, I was just working part-time for the seminary at the time, and I was helping them translate lectures because I speak both Korean and English. And one day, Kent Anderson says, hey, we have this great program called Immerse. And I think that was like the first year you guys launched Immerse. And he just pulls me into his office and says, hey, you're doing that thing at TFN, right? And yeah, how, how are you liking it? It's great. I think you should go into ministry. Let me pray for you. So he prayed over me <laughs> in the office and said, God, use him. And if you're going to call him to vocational ministry, do it. And I was like, what in the world is this guy doing? It's my life. He should have no right to pray this prayer on my behalf. And I was quite actually upset. 
and thinking, no, no, I've seen my dad do it. I don't want to go into vocational ministry. I'm very happy serving, volunteering and all that stuff. Um, but here I am. He was right. I was wrong. And God really gave me a joy and a sense of wanting to do this. So now I'm, I'm super thankful for Kent and what he's done. Wow, that's quite the story. And it's interesting how in your life, it was your mother praying over you, mm -hmm. Kent praying over you, that we really propelled you into the ministry. That you... oh, I like what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, that was good. I didn't even mean to do that. That was, that was uh, you know, more luck than brains there, that's for sure. Uh, that really sent you in the trajectory of where you are now. And I remember first knowing about you when you got involved with Tawasan First Nations and mm -hmm. hearing about all of that that was happening. And I kind of have been watching from the sidelines as God has expanded your borders in ministry. Uh, I remember meeting with you when you were in the Immerse program, mm -hmm. trying to figure out if that was the right place for you. And as it turns out, traditional seminary is where you landed and it was good for you, worked out for you. But I remember meeting and hearing of, oh, this Paul Park, he just works from dawn till dusk. He's just <laughs> going all the time. I, I remember hearing that from uh, people that you work with, people who knew of you. And it really is that prayer that your mother prayed over you, God lit a fire in you. And I mean, I see that in you when we get together for dinner and we talk, uh, the top the topic of conversation is around the church and about what God's doing and where he's moving and so it really has defined who you are uh, and that's an amazing amazing journey for sure to see what God's done in your life um, you know as we talked as we talked about getting together and doing this podcast today uh, looking at topics of conversation I really wanted to dive into this uh, topic of and we've kind of already touched on it, your ministry with the First Nations uh, in Tawasin there, but really wanted to talk about multiculturalism and how can we make this a reality across our fellowship? How do we get to a place, Paul, where we, our churches reflect the communities where they are? Like mm -hmm. what in your, like, give me some ideas about how you think we're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, Todd Chapman and I chat about that from time to time, uh, as with actually his dad worked with my dad, Dan Chapman and, and my dad, Daniel, they would try to work with uh, the fellowship churches and see how can we do that? How can we reflect Surrey, Langley and Vancouver and all these other places, even in Tawasin? I mean, we're growing in diversity ethnically and, and all that. So how do we how do we do that? And I don't know, I, I think it's difficult. Um, a lot of people ask me that question just because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not Caucasian, and yet I, I serve in one of the most Caucasian uh, churches in our fellowship um, at SDBC there. But, you know, it just doesn't happen overnight, right? Like, we can't just say, hey, let's put a plan together, let's attend a conference, and now we're all going to be pros at this. It really takes a lot of intentionality, and it takes a lot of hard work, and it takes a lot of experience and getting messy on the grounds, and, and relationships are never easy, let alone relationships with people who do not share your same food, do not share your same language or, or values even sometimes. And those are, those are tough things that you have to kind of get, get through in order for us to even start a conversation about being a multicultural or at least a multiculturally effective church. Um, and, and I think it, it's almost daunting. It's almost too big of a task for any one of us to say, hey, you know what, let's tackle this, which is why I think sometimes we see a leg, like we have the desire, we have 
you know, in our minds, yes, of course, we want our churches to be impacting every nation and every tongue. Um, but I think it's harder um, to actually put that into action because it's such a big task. Yeah, you know, I've been reading a book our, uh, as a fellowship staff. We're reading a book called Many Colors, and I've got a, a copy of it here somewhere. Um, actually, I think it's underneath of my laptop, holding my laptop. <laughs> I won't get it out at the moment, but uh, it's called Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing Church is the name of the book. And the author is Soon Chan Ra, and he's an American pastor of a, mm -hmm. a multicultural church, and he really... Uh, digs in and challenges uh, his readers on understanding some of the implications of history that have affected the way we do church. And I know, I know, as you're chatting, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I grew up in Vancouver. My dad would go on Sunday afternoons and preach at the Korean church uh, that was down the road. And we had Korean pastors who attended my dad's church in the morning. So they kind of came in the morning and got fed. And then they'd go back and minister to their uh, congregations. I remember my dad being a guest pastor at the Korean service at First Baptist downtown Vancouver. And I would go with him as a little girl. And I, the best part about that whole thing was the food. <laughs> I'll tell you what, those, that food was amazing. And there we'd, we'd have the service and I couldn't wait for that service to be over because it was all, they, they, they ate together. They shared yeah. meals together. It's a really beautiful piece of the Korean culture mm -hmm. and many other cultures besides the North American culture share that value. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and he talks, this guy, uh, Soon uh, Chan Ra, he talks about it in his book, the difference between what he calls a primary culture and a secondary culture. And he talks about American culture as being, or North American culture as being secondary. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world is having this primary culture, which is built on relationships rather than productivity. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I bring that up because how, how do you think we change that? How do we change that in our churches, Paul? Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I, I, it's hard to change uh, a comfort zone that we've really made for ourselves. And we're great at it right here, here in North America. We've We've, we've done church a certain way and we felt like it worked. It had great impact globally and our churches have done well. I mean, I think a lot of my generation, we grow up reading books like Generation Z and everything else where we say, hey, the previous generation, that didn't work, blah, blah, blah. But then we also want to give credit to the fact that the previous generation did a fantastic job, which is why we're Christians today, like the missional work that um, we've done. But then I guess we get comfortable with it. Um, as affluence comes into churches, not only our society, but even in our churches and the way that we've been doing it works and we have lots of work. Pastors or, and churches are never uh, lacking work. We were always busy. We have so much to do. So it's so easy for us to not think about this component of church. Okay, you know what? We're doing really well with the one demographic that we're, we're really good at, whether it's white young adults or whether it's you know, English speaking you know, seniors or whatever, we're really hitting well, we're doing well, so let's just lean into it and keep going. Um, and then it's okay, I think, for the first five, 10 years maybe to go on that mode. But then as you go 20, 30, 40 years, you realize your community is changing. Abbotsford has changed. It's not as white as it used to be. Tawasin is changing. Vancouver is changing. Everywhere in our province is changing. And as it goes 30, 40, 50 years, and the church continues to focus on what's worked for us, all of a sudden our neighbors don't look the same. 
and we've now lost a lot of missional effectiveness because we're no longer effective in the place where we are. Um, so for me, I think we have to bring that intentionality and, 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 and reason to actually get in there and say, you know what, this is going to be very difficult and even somewhat awkward. For instance, we had a seminary uh, training. So we had one of the seminary courses at uh, Northwest Baptist um, in our church. Um, I, I just thought, hey, we're at the church. We have lots of space at our church. We'll rent it out for free. You guys can come. And the Korean program, I think there's like 40 students. Uh, one of their doctor program courses, they, they just ran it there. Kent Anderson was teaching. I was translating. So that, that all worked. Um, they brought lunch, though, because it was like an eight-hour class um, per day for a week. And they all brought their lunch. And then um, some people that were in our building at the time from our church um, decided, you know, that's not a familiar smell, for example. It's Korean food, and you might not be used to it. You thought it was fantastic. Um, some others might not share that. So even the way in which we expressed our displeasure of smelling something that we're not used to smelling already kind of oh, here, like, we can't even eat in the same space, let alone share the gospel. And, and so for us to be into a place where we can be missionally effective in relationship, like you said, which matters so much to a lot of these cultures, we have to actually break those barriers and say, you know what, this might be uncomfortable for me, and I'm going to have to actually learn to engage in a place where it's not comfortable. Um, it, it, it's just so unnatural to us that we have to go that way. Like, I think one of the largest hurdles that we, we face in, in becoming a more effective cross-cultural ministry is um, that we speak the lingua franca in Canada, right? It, all English-speaking countries. We speak the language that everyone else wants to learn. That means we've never had to go and actually try to learn another language to accommodate someone because they were used to them learning our language. In, in the world of medicine, in the world of business, in the world of almost everything, they learn our language and, and operate with this. Therefore, um, what it's, it's become, even though we're not like naturally arrogant people, we actually expect it because we grew used to it. And, and you know, as we got accustomed to it, we hope that these people will accommodate to our way of doing church. If you don't like it, well, I'm sorry, but the majority of the world likes the way we do church. So we've actually grown, I guess, um, less effective in accommodating other people and actually going there and meeting them where they're at. Even though we as Christians want to do this, teach this and preach this, we've actually not done that too much now. Unless you've been a missionary outside of Canada or maybe in the First Nations communities, we actually have very little experience in leaving our comfort zone and completely um, trying to accommodate to them and speak their language, whether it's literally their language or figuratively. Um, so I think we need to gain more experience in that. You know, that's such a good point you bring up. And I think uh, one of the things we struggle with is whether we want to say it out loud or not. In that familiarity and in the fact that we, it's our language that they're learning, so we think they're going to embrace our way, way down deep inside, we think our way is right. We think our way is the only way. Whether we would, we never would really want to say that out loud, but it's, we operate with that premise that we're right. And that is almost like that stymies us from the beginning. And that's the piece. That's where it's like cultural intelligence, the self-awareness piece mm -hmm. becomes so important because you really need to know what you what you value before you can put it on the table and embrace what somebody else values yeah. so in his book 
uh, this guy, uh, Soon Chan Ra, talks about how we need to develop a third culture. So yes. it's the amalgamation of culture A and culture B building into the third culture. What's that really going to look like? And gee whiz, that's really uh, a challenging for us. I, I don't know that. I don't know that even at my age. I feel like I'm old now, Paul. I look at you and somehow I got old. And but but being able to do that has become. Uh, I have to think intentionally about how I embrace people from another culture, how I love them. And I grew up in multicultural Vancouver. Yeah. My best friends growing up, I had a black friend and a Korean friend. And the, we called ourselves, uh, we told ourselves chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. <laughs> like we really did. So I grew up in this very multicultural, I embraced it and still I struggle with it. Oh, yeah. uh, it's not been, uh, not been an easy thing. So, um, I want you to talk to us a little bit about your experience with the Tuasin's First Nations. Mm -hmm. um, what, how that has informed how you do ministry, what you've seen come out of that. And, and even when we talk about multiculturalism within our churches, um, how do we even help, you know, the first, the first people who ever lived here? Uh, it really is, they are true North Americans and yet they've been marginalized. What, what are your thoughts on all of that in regard to the church? Yeah, I mean, I, I've done ministry with the First Nations, TFN, Tawasan First Nation, for about eight and a half, nine years. Um, and whenever I share this and when people ask about it, people think I'm, I'm some sort of an expert because I've done it. But the only thing I could share is really the mistakes we've made and what's not worked. And I actually had a couple of missionaries over, Sarah and I had them over for dinner from our church, and uh, they serve um, with the First Nations in uh, Alberta. And uh, we actually shared notes and everything that I said, because they've been doing this for decades, everything that I asked them and talked to them about, they already knew, right? And I was like, man, I wish I knew you guys like years ago when I was actually doing this, when I was doing First Nations work. And he's like, well, Paul, all the mistakes that you talked about, we only know them because we've made the same mistakes too. <laughs> How else do you think we learn? Um, so for me, like the mistakes that we learned, there, there were tons, right? Like first we went in and we did a Sunday morning service because that's all we know, right? Sunday morning, 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m., whatever it is, um, do a service. This is how we do church. And, you know, you said earlier, um, we think we're right. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to fault us for that because we, th we do things because we think it's right or else why would we do them? So, of course, we think what we're doing is right. So, so we thought that was right and we did it. We realized quickly the demographic we were trying to serve there did um, uh, struggle with alcoholism, did struggle with, um, you know, cultural baggage of a lot of bad habits that they built up. And when we were talking to those people, and they weren't just First Nations, there's there lots of Caucasians who, who landed there and just settled with them. Um, and they had history of alcoholism and whatnot. And when we try to serve them, uh, 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning is not a good time for hangover, right? So we decided, let's push this. Why do we have to? It was a huge legalism moment for us. We're like, can we actually have church at 5 p.m. instead of 10 a.m.? So we decided, let's do 5 p.m. And I think to this day, they still have 5 p.m. service on Sundays. And it's a short service, 5 to 5.30, maybe 5.40. And then we have dinner. And what we do is after dinner, we, uh, or during dinner, we would actually talk about normal life, whether it's the Canucks game, whether it's um, you know complaints about the weather, whatever Vancouverites like to talk about. Um, we talked to them about, you know, things that we can all relate to. And then they actually learned more about God during those meals than through my sermons or through our, our prayer times, even though those are valuable too. 
um, we actually got to build relationships. So it is a lot more like a missional work, like a literally missionary type of work. Um, but at the same time, it's actually beautiful. This is TFN ministry was why I en uh, ended up wanting to be in vocational ministry. Um, I never got paid a penny uh, for doing any of that work, but I fell in love with what I would, um, what God was doing. And it was just, it was a blessing. So for me, doing that ministry taught, taught me how I want to do ministry at a church like STBC, uh, quote unquote, more traditional church. Um, we should go back to that more organic, more real, not just preaching. And although preaching is like, it's so important, um, but so much more, right? Doing life together, um, knowing each other and, and just dining together. Th those things are just so important. So I, I think I learned a lot. I don't know if I can speak a lot about um, here, do this for the First Nation ministry, because to be honest, that I think, I think people would, um, people would think I'm some sort of an expert just because I've done it. Um, but after 10 years, all I've learned is, okay, what I can't do. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I'm listening to you and thinking uh, just about how, you know, we don't, how do we do ministry? It's really, it's organic. It's just one foot in front of the other. I was reading in Ephesians just today mm -hmm. about, you know, giving us God giving us wisdom. Paul's talking about getting giving us opening the eyes of our hearts yeah. to see and understand. And I think in the moment God gives you what you need to do to in the ministry that he's called you to and the, you know you don't know what the fruition of that ministry will end up being over your lifetime. Mm -hmm. But God God is at work in uh, in that group of people. And I just think it's interesting that God sent you on that journey to awaken your love for ministry. Yeah. And so how is that not going to be reflected in whatever God calls you to as you move forward in your journey? It's it's been influenced by the ministry that you did with Tawasan First Nations and the love that God gave you for those people. So I think yeah, that's 100%. really really amazing. Um, you know, as you, you think about, you know, as you talk, as we talk about how uh, these primary cultures that, that are dotted among us where relationship is paramount, here we are in the middle of a pandemic mm -hmm. where we are isolated in our homes, needing to reach out, like here we are doing a podcast over Zoom because we're doing everything over Zoom. I am sitting in my new home office that has my dog crate in it and my sourdough bread that I'm trying to make a starter <laughs> on the heater over here. I got go. this room heated up like a sauna, so I decided I'll put my sourdough in here at my rides faster. <laughs> but here we are trying to navigate this and I have been so convicted to connect with my neighbors because it's the only people I can connect with in any kind of real time. Like I can walk down the street with my puppy dog and talk to my neighbors. And how do you see this pandemic changing the way we do church and how we connect with one another? What do you see happening over the next year? I think this will open up opportunities. I think it is already opening up opportunities. And I know that I'm going to be sensitive. Um, the first Sunday that I was um, speaking during the whole online services and all that stuff, the first Sunday we transitioned, I was in tears because as I was praying, I realized the pain of people actually losing jobs, people actually losing lives, people losing their health. Um, this isn't so, so I, I don't say it lightly when I say this is an opportunity. I don't try to minimize the people who have lost so much during this time all over the world. 
but I think it does present to us an opportunity to rethink life. Um, I know a lot of non-Christians, um, because of my past uh, that I described earlier, I have a lot of non-Christians around me all the time. And we, we got to chat about um, spirituality. Is there something, like Bill Gates, I don't think he's a uh, Christian, but he, he actually, him and Melinda, they posted something throughout the pandemic saying this must be a spiritual experience because, you know, um, he's a, I think he has like $58 billion to his name, but um, before this pandemic, him and any other person in the world, they're treated equally. Um, there's a spiritual reason for this. Money can't get you out of this. Um, you know, power can't get you out of this. There's something bigger going on here. Um, so he actually wrote a blog, I think, saying that you need to, um, we need to learn something. There's something for us to all learn from this. And I think as Christians, that's kind of how we always operate. There is obviously something that God is saying through this. And there is some opportunities for us to share Christ in all of this. I think the great part is that we're all, we talked about multiculturalism today, but all of us share, you know, different languages. We have different meals that we enjoy, different values, even different family styles. But one thing we have in common is that we live in a broken world. This broken world and this need for a redeemer is the one common ground that all cultures in this world share, right? There's religious practices that try to figure out the creation of the world, the aftermath of what happens after death, all of this, like every culture explores it in their own way. Um, and we all land somewhat differently, sometimes similarly. Um, but we all try to seek it out because I think we innately recognize the brokenness of this world and the desire for it to end and usher in some sort of a new world, um, in our case, a new Jerusalem. Um, so for us, it's, it's an opportunity. This is, we've never seen brokenness, our generation at least, we've never seen brokenness to this level where it can't just blame uh, I know some people are trying to blame the Chinese for it or blame someone for it, blame Trump for it. But really, those are all excuses. Really, there's no one to blame here. It's a pandemic. It's, it's not like some other party's fault. It's, it's a brokenness at the core of this world that we can't fix. It's not in our control. So it, it begs the question, why is the world so broken? Is there any way that we can hope for a better world? Or is this the, is this the, the car that we were dealt and we just have to live with it? So, so I think it presents awesome opportunities. I know lots of churches are doing Alpha Online and stuff, um, but I'm not just saying programmatically. I think all of us can take this opportunity to say, you know what, let's reset our worldviews. Let's reset and say, okay, money doesn't solve everything. This is teaching us a big lesson on that. Even Bill Gates is saying he's got all the, world in the, all the money in the world and, and he's admitting it. So maybe this is an opportunity. Um, that's how we're approaching it. And we've seen some, Great conversations come up. Um, online churches are amazing. Our, our, our friends are actually, our, our church friends are sending their links to family members that haven't uh, been to church for years. Um, we have friends who, who, who have anxiety, social anxiety and stuff like that, that would find it difficult to go into a church, a room full of hundreds of, um, you know, people who think differently than you. But then with the live service online, it was easy for them to engage. So I actually heard from tons of people who engaged with us and they're, they're either non-Christians or people who have walked away from the church. And it was easy for them to engage this way. So I, I do think God is doing something powerful here, not just in our church, but obviously all over the world. Yeah, no, you're, it's, um, it's so true what you're saying. And more people are tuning in. Our churches that are calculating and looking mm -hmm. at how many computer screens are tuned into what's going on, uh, attendance is up. Uh, people mm -hmm. are searching. And I think too, as we've talked about multiculturalism today, 
you know, this really, as you said, it's a race, it's a time to, it's to hit the time to hit the reset button and look at what's really important in life. And, and it does equal the playing field. It, it, it gives everybody, you, you know, what we have in common is in sharp focus. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can use this as an opportunity to kind of, I don't know, back up the truck, Paul, make life a little simpler, yeah. enjoy what God has given us without that continual pursuit for more. Uh, even from the standpoint of church, I think about how we're always kind of going and looking and trying to figure out what's next. Uh, and yet, what do people need? People need relationship. People need mm -hmm. to know Christ. People need to know that they're loved, that they're seen, that they belong. All the things, and, and I've been kind of looking and focusing on the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5 yeah. and, and re, you know, re-memorizing those and understanding how do I live those out in a way that's real with the people in my life. So, yeah, I think what you've had to say here today is, is timely for us as a church. And when we think about embracing cultures, embracing uh, people who look different than us, eat different than us, uh, communicate with each other in different ways. It is an opportunity for us to take a deep breath and go, we don't have this all figured out, mm -hmm. but we're in this together. So good word for us today. I am just grateful that you took the time to be with us. I'm uh, so grateful for you and Sarah and the ministry that you've got at South Delta. We love you guys and are so happy to have you as part of our fellowship family. So thank you for spending this time with me today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And I hope uh, you guys will stay safe. I love that you actually have so awesome hair, whereas I have this ugly hair that I have to cover up now. With my hat. I have a few roots. I have a few roots every day. It's a little bit worse and a little bit worse, but you know, you just, you do what you can pretty soon. I'm going to have to have some kind of a filter over top of the lot or I'll just be going, we're just podcasting and it's just, it's voice only. We're going to get to that point for sure. Anyway, so glad to have you with us here today. And we look forward to doing this with you again. Thanks, Paul. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We would love to hear your thoughts on this topic, and you can share those with us in the comments or on social media using the hashtag PropelPodcast. As always, our team at the Fellowship Pacific Ministry Center is committed to serving you. To find out more about the resources we have available and how we can support you, visit www.fedpacific.ca.